Welcome to the Inclusive Chamber podcast, a new platform from the Cincinnati USA Regional Chamber highlighting best practices in diversity, equity, and inclusion. In each episode, we'll meet leaders who will bring to life our strategic imperative to model inclusion in everything we do. I'm Mary Stagaman, your host for the Inclusive Chamber. My guest today is Matt Disher, military recruiting program leader, a newly created position at Cushman and Wakefield, a commercial real estate and services company with a global reach. Matt, welcome to the Inclusive Chamber. Thank you, Mary. Happy to be here. I'd like to start where you and I probably started our very first conversation together as colleagues, which was with your own experience in the military and how that led you to your current work. So I know that you joined up um, the Marines in 2000 and served until 2004 and had a very interesting experience in that period of time. Would you tell us more about it? Absolutely. So I think I have to start with my the, the family lineage, and that was that my grandfather served in the Army in World War II. Uh, my father was in the Navy during Vietnam, and my older brother served in the Navy uh, just a couple of years before I went into the Marines. So I, I came from a family that has uh, deep roots in the military and, you know, patriotic. Uh, we we proudly r- raised the flag at our house. As a kid, I, I ran around in the woods with camouflage on my face and uh, always wanted to be in some sort of cool militaristic capacity when I got older. So it seems fitting that I, I went after the Marine Corps after high school. So I joined the Marine Corps with the advice that I should go into a role that would give me job skills for my civilian life following the military. And I went into the uh, the construction and engineering field within the Marine Corps, and the, the job title was, was combat engineer. And uh, I found out after I got in and, and went through all the training that there are two sides to combat engineering. There's the construction and, and building side, uh-huh. and then there's the explosive side, which operates typically in a, a combat capacity generally attached to an infantry unit. So I I learned very little about construction and engineering and a whole lot about explosives. And, and was it, that choice made for you by the military or did you actually find yourself gravitating toward explosives? I'll tell you, after the fact, I loved all of the things that I got to do because I got to do some some pretty amazing things that many people see in the movies or on the video games. The choice was made for me though. It was, it was based on needs within the Marine Corps mm-hmm. and, and where they needed people. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know through the process of testing and schooling if if I scored a certain way on some tests that just you know thrust me into that type of position, but I ended up there uh, regardless with some amazing people, served with some amazing people that I still keep in contact with in a, a unique role that, again, offers you some hands-on experience with things that, that people rarely get to experience. So I did four years in the military. I, I picked up rank. I was leading troops at a, a very young age. And got to travel to 16 different countries um, all around the world, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and, and of course, all around the United States. And when I got out, I think my experience was coming back to a society that largely didn't understand what the military looked like or how they could employ somebody like me. And so my resume reflected explosives and weapons systems and uh, oftentimes military leadership, but that didn't translate to anything out here. So as you say that about um, about your resume and about your experience, I wonder too if there was a factor of 
timing in that at other times in our history, we've had great waves of veterans coming back and they found their way into the workforce. It is part of the challenge that we we sort of have a rolling number of people coming out of the military, but because we are we're not at scale, so to speak, as as we might have been in previous times. Is that part of the problem? I think if you look at this over the course of the post nine eleven generation, everything after nine eleven, it, it looks like corporate America really started to ramp up their military programs in the late two thousands and just after twenty ten. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say in the last five years, you've probably seen the most movement where the largest companies in America are actually producing uh, actual efforts and, and programs and, and people, staff behind mm-hmm. military recruitment because they've realized not only that, you know, if we get beyond the philanthropy of, of hiring military because it's the right thing to do, that these are very skilled and well-conditioned men and women. So, yes, I would say it was a symptom of what I would call an, an early release from the military before everybody else was getting out. Uh, or maybe right around the time that the the, the same post nine eleven generation was starting to get out of the military, I was getting out too, and and it was an all volunteer military, right? Yeah, Absolutely. which changed the equation as well, right? Right. Yeah. So know, then your experience, yeah, yeah. Well, and and back then I would say that uh, most people in in my situation would go into law enforcement, and that's what I pursued right away. I I was going to go into law enforcement, and and I don't say that you know as a, a bad thing. I think law enforcement's a great career career path for for many people, especially leaving the military. There's a lot of carryover. There's a lot of camaraderie and and uh, very militaristic uh, personalities. Mm-hmm. But that limited my options. And so I, uh, I I did some side jobs. I got some some work with um, actually Jeff Ruby's restaurants, hired me right out of the military, uh, interviewed with Jeff Ruby himself and and got a position mm-hmm. you know, on that first interview. So that was I was very grateful for that, for that opportunity. But in looking for a nine to five type of corporate role, it took me many, many years to actually get plugged into something. And uh, in many cases, it was it was after I had my degree, which I was pursuing uh, in the years following my my military discharge. And pursuing that degree was that was that triggered by the lack of opportunity that you were finding in terms of moving to a traditional business role? Right. I, I mean, I think in the military, you have all of these these post-military benefits available to you. So you'd be foolish not to use or utilize somewhere uh, some of those benefits, whether it's going into a skilled trade or or, or going to, to a, a bachelor's program or an associate's program or even further than that. Mm-hmm. My family, my mom is an educator by by trade. She was a, she was an, a longtime employee of University of Cincinnati. So of course, I think it was it was in the cards to go to college and, and pursue that. But yes, absolutely. It was a catalyst for me to get that degree done as fast as I can, because I, I really did. I wanted to start my career. I was already years behind my my high school peers who had already gone through college and, and were in professional roles uh, working in corporate America. And I really wanted to be there. I really wanted to join them. Mm-hmm. And what was the first corporate role that you landed then? Well, so if you, if you look through... Uh, what I ended up doing, I, I worked uh, in the restaurant business for a while uh, behind a bar, making making good money as a bartender, uh, met a lot of people. But then I went to work for the Cincinnati Police Department in the Emer- Emergency Communications Center, uh, the 911 mm-hmm. Dispatch Center. I uh, worked there for four and a half years at night during the day going to college uh, to get my degree. So I didn't sleep for another four years following the military. And then I, I uh, my wife and I were, um, we were having a child and I said, I can't 
do the 12 hour nights and I have to go to something more regular. And, um, I went to work at recruit military in Loveland. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was the first role where I was in an office setting, uh, doing sales and mm -hmm. recruitment. And they work with employers to help place veterans, correct. right? Yeah. Correct. So it's the largest post military to civilian career, uh, organization in the United States. So and they're, they're here, they're based here in Cincinnati, based here correct? In Cincinnati, yeah. in Loveland. Yeah. 130 career fairs around the United States every year, large military resume database, handful of other services that they mm -hmm. offer to, mm -hmm. to employers. So I went to work for them and in, in pitching a, uh, a sale or a package to total quality logistics and Eastgate, I was, I, I was meeting with the VP and director of talent acquisition at TQL and they wanted to get into the military space. Because they were growing so rapidly. Right. They still, still are. are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They said, Hey, instead of us buying this package, can we just have you come work here? And, uh, and, and it wasn't in these, in this actual conversation, but yeah. that's how the conversation pretty much went. how it went. Yeah. It was, why don't we do this internally and we need an expert to do it. So, uh, I went to work there and I built a, a military recruiting program that had quite a bit of success in the first year. So just thinking about your, uh, initial experience coming out, do you think that your experience was, um, in any way different from what most veterans experience coming in the transition back to civilian life? I would say that mine was fairly typical. Uh, I had my really hard days. You know, some of what I discuss with my friends even today, just trying to identify, go backwards in time and trying to identify those tough times. Because I, I think really there's a statement that, that Marines make, once a Marine, always a Marine. Yeah. That never leaves you. Uh, it's true. I mm -hmm. still think like a Marine. I, I am still a Marine. I think the other piece of this is that what you take away from military service and those experiences, good or bad, they, they don't leave you. And what we've discussed among some of my closest friends who are also veterans is that the hardest part was not some of the operations in which we conducted or the things that we, you know, in, in which we partook. It was really getting out and realizing that America has no idea where you've been and what you've done, and they don't care. And I, I hate to say it in, in such tough terms, but that's really how it is. It's it's uh, we've done these amazing things, as I mentioned before, that most people would only and you've see in done the movies. Them at an age when most people are still in college or right. trying to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. Right. And you've been in a leadership role. Correct. And then you come back to the States and all of a sudden you're behind a bar. Before I could drink a beer legally, uh, I had 13 Marines under my charge. I was responsible for hundreds of thousands of dollars in equipment. I was standing at planning tables with executive leaders like colonels, telling them what my engineers and what my Marines can bring to the fight. And then I get out. And suddenly trying to explain that to an interviewer in corporate America, it doesn't mean anything to them. So, Matt, it's clear to me where your passion comes from when we've talked about this in the time that I've known you. And so I'm curious about what you've actually observed and worked through now that you're in the field, so to speak, and um, what obstacles you see. You mentioned employers and their lack of understanding of of what um, a veteran brings to the table. What is it that they're not understanding? And right. how does that translation get made? Great question. Uh, a lot of answers here. I would say First and foremost, one of the biggest things that I've noticed is an uh, in, in unintentional bias. And this probably is where we start. We call with, it implicit bias, right? We right. can't, we don't see it. It's not in front right. of our face. It's back here in the back of our brain, right? right? Absolutely. And it's it's based on pop culture and it's based on what people think they know. Mm -hmm. and, and it is probably the first piece of anything we talk about when we talk about inclusive environments, right? Uh, of companies being more inclusive to a, uh, a diverse workforce of uh, people who don't fit the, the normal mold, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
in the military, I, I would say that there's, or or when civilians are looking at the military, I'd say that there's this bias that one, and I've seen this, I've seen this, I've had this conversation many times with people. One, we joined the military because we had no other options. Simply not true. Um, some of the smartest people, some of the most educated people uh, on paper and just in general, and what I mean by that is people with multiple degrees and education, uh, and also people who were just exceptionally smart and intelligent, uh, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with were in the Marine Corps with their hands on a trigger or uh, out in the field or mm -hmm. running some sort of operation. So that's one of those biases that America typically sees. They they know the movies. They know pop culture. They know uh, Rambo and Top Gun and uh, the movies that they see. And, and to them, these are the military is a bunch of people with guns in their hands and you know, running operations in Afghanistan and Iraq. But uh, the fact is that only about 15% of the military is that. The rest of these people are are people that have jobs just like you and I do out here. They are PR people, they're HR people, supply, uh, logistics, technology, IT, you name it. The military is one gigantic corporation, so to speak, mm -hmm. with all the jobs that we have out here. So if you look around the office, Virtually any job you have in the office, aside from some of the, the really specialized roles in corporate America that don't exist in the military, um, somebody in the military can do that job. So it's a bias there. Uh, the other thing that I noticed is that the recruiters and hiring managers within corporate America don't often know how to interpret a military resume. And if you look at the, the data and, and the, the, um, the results of surveys of recruiters, they typically say that they look at a resume for six to eight seconds or whatever it is. Yeah. They look at the top of the resume and they long. move on. Right. Well, if you've got a, a military resume sitting there and, and there are some, some acronyms from the armed forces and a couple of things that don't make any sense, that person's going to say, well, I'm going to move on to the next resume and find the person who's the easiest match. Um, so we, we run into, A, some of the biases. We run into some of the the structural thing, simply not understanding what the military looks like and what they can bring to the table. So it's interesting you mentioned um, acronyms. And I remember a conversation we had about uh, jargon and um, what it's like. I expect this, this conversation starts when you're in the hiring process, but it also continues when you actually move into the workspace, which is that you're used to a language which is English but includes a lot of terms uh, that are completely unfamiliar to civilians. Right. And so I, I, what I heard from you just now is there is a translation problem right. as well. Right, a translation problem. And you know, I would even make the argument that every company, every every corporate entity, also has jargon. Its own set of jargon, right? right. Sure. So, yeah. so for anybody to say, "Hey, I don't understand what." your military resume says, or what you've done in the military, what these acronyms are, just the same. The military applicant is talking about jobs in your company and going, well, I don't understand that either. So there's, we're missing each other. We're driving down two opposite sides of the highway. I'd say it's gotten a lot better. There's a lot more education out there. There's a lot more, uh, there are a lot more resources available to, to uh, recruiters and hiring managers. And as I mentioned before, a lot of companies have now dedicated resources around this. You know, one of the other things I was going to mention is Corporate America has, for the longest time, looked at the the graduating student as you know the the crown. Like this is what we're looking for. We need to hire these people, freshly men and graduates of colleges and universities. Right. I mean, yeah. And uh, one of the arguments I've I've made consistently is that 
in college, you're not necessarily learning the, the role that you're going to be doing in corporate America. If you go get a specialized degree, perhaps, um, obviously doctors go through medical school sure. and, and they are uniquely qualified to do, to, to do, to practice medicine. But a lot of people get a generalized degree or liberal arts degree or something along those lines and go work in corporate America in a job that they learn on the job. And the, the argument can be made that we can hire military who have a, an advanced learning curve. The military is constantly learning. Uh, most of my time in the military was actually in a classroom or training setting anyway. So I, I learn quickly. I'm conditioned to learn quickly and on the fly and in practical application, application situations. And that's another piece of education that, that corporate America and civilian workforces need to understand is that while education, while traditional education is exceptionally valuable, of course, the reason why a lot of employers look for somebody with traditional education is that they've committed themselves to a degree program and they have some education on their background now that that lends itself to doing a job in the workspace. Uh, the military has also committed themselves to generally four years or more of, of learning and education and mm -hmm. operational experience. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the jobs in the military, if it's a, a direct carryover, like an IT person coming to a help desk role in a corporate setting or an HR person from the army coming into an HR position in corporate America, mm -hmm. similarly, you could take a uh, in, an infantryman out of the Marine Corps and plug them into a sales opportunity and teach them how to do sales and sell a product and they will be successful. They they don't know how to fail. So that's something that we we as a population of veterans who have who have made it successfully in this corporate space need to then share back. We kind of have to send the elevator back down and say, hey, everybody, here's how we get connected to these roles. Here's how the, the corporate recruiters can understand the military and vice versa. The, the recruiters or rather the, the military can understand exactly what they're doing to get into the corporate space. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that uh, one of the things that we know is oftentimes employers use a bachelor's degree as a proxy for um, the ability to continuously learn in life, critical thinking skills, and for the soft skills that everyone needs to have to be successful at work. And so I I've often said that it's interesting to me that we have a challenge in hiring veterans because they come to the table with a degree of discipline that we can all admire, but also the ability to show up on time, to be dressed appropriately, to uh, interact with respect with their colleagues. There may be term terminology and methods of interaction that are different in the military, but it feels like those can be recast in a way to help people be successful. I'd like to talk about your experience at CentOS because I know you spent uh, a good amount of time there and that they have made uh, a deep commitment to hiring veterans. And so um, I'm interested in how you saw that program evolve and what made it work, what made it successful. And, and I think that's as much about what happens after somebody is hired uh, as much as it is in the hiring process itself. Yeah. In, in very general terms, we, we kind of took an algorithm and, and, and plugged in that algorithm that almost any company could, could use as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I've, I've spoken about this on panels and keynote speeches and things like that. But that algorithm really is dedicating resources to uh, to engaging, to, to reaching the military, first of all, the transitioning service member or the veteran who exists in the, the regional population and, and attracting them to come to this organization and saying, hey, here's what we have to offer here. 
on the back end and, and inside, and I always say this, uh, if you build it, they will come, just like the movie, right? Uh, if you build the program inside of the the, the company, mm-hmm. they will come. And and what I mean by that is that the military is very, it's it's very fraternal in that people are aware of other people in the military. If you hire one, then you have the network of their 500 friends who are also currently in the military or served in the military as well. So we would look at, at that dynamic. At, at CentOS, the, the program was roughly 30 years old. So it's been there for quite some time, long before corporate America had stepped into the space and, and really started dedicating resources to it. And the leadership in the organization uh, was fully committed to it. So that made a, a huge difference. You can tell when you're bringing a candidate in for an interview who is currently in the military or transitioning or prior military, you can tell just from the culture of the organization that the company is committed to it. It's something that everybody can talk about. They're aware of the efforts that are happening out there. Uh, anybody in the hallway, you could stop them and say, what do you know about the military program? And they would tell you something that they, some key piece of, hey, we're involved with disabled American veterans, or um, I have three veterans that work for me. Mm-hmm. So everybody took a piece of this. What we had unique there was the the ability for the applying veteran to reach an actual human being in the application process which takes a lot of manpower. It takes a lot of, of people dedicated to it. We had a specific person dedicated to that. If the candidate opted into that program, voluntarily opted mm-hmm. into a program, mm-hmm. they would be reached out to by uh, one of the staff members on my team. So that these are little tiny things that I'm, I'm talking about, little things that you can influence in the, the organization or in the culture of an organization. But uh, aside from the resources and advertising and getting the word out to the military, having the internal culture built and having the support inside of the organization will cause the individual in the company to think about the military when they go to hire. They see a military resume and they say, I'm going to take a little bit extra time to look at this resume. Or when there's a person making contact with every veteran applicant, uh, that person can then vouch for this candidate and say, I've read through the resume, I've understood or interpreted the the background here, hiring manager, let me pass this resume along to you for an interview. So we, we, we just scaled out in that regard. It was a lot of internal communication, getting people on board with uh, what the steps were to make this successful and uh, a lot of training. The, the training really has to be in educating the people that are making the hiring decisions uh, to understand what the military is and what the military is not. Again, breaking down those those biases. The more you talk about it, the more you have this educational process, the less people will have those uh, biases. They won't think in those terms. They will always think favorably now of this group of candidates that now ends up on their desk in, in terms of a resume. Yeah, it's that whole um, idea of uh, exposure. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's the reverse of the old saw about familiarity bring, uh, breeds contempt. It's really about the more you know, the more you understand. And as you were talking, Matt, I was thinking about our talent challenges here. We're not alone in Cincinnati and, and having them. And we think a lot about how to leverage, under leverage pools of talent. And much of what you just talked about would be just as applicable to other underrepresented groups in our workforce, like people with disabilities. And sometimes, of course, we have an intersection of a veteran and a person with a disability, um, but also immigrants who are bringing skills that are coming from another part of the world. And one of the big issues for them is that translation of how do I take my degree and all the skills I built in my home country and have them be applicable to work here in the U.S.? So 
it it reminds me that that some of those skills that your people were learning over time and appreciation for what a veteran brings to the table are the same kind of things we want. We want HR departments and we want the folks that do the onboarding. We want the talent development people to understand how to work effectively across a wide span of diversity in order to have a more inclusive organization. Right. And I say this often that what works for the veteran population works for everybody else. Plug in those same algorithms, the, the same training methods, mm-hmm. as you just mentioned, mm-hmm. the same familiarization and, and repetitive nature of here's what we're doing as a company. And, and it has to come from the highest reaches in the organization, the C-suite. Um, spread that message down to the people and and give them resources to not only reach that population of, of people, but also to understand that population of people. And you'll see a more inclusive and diverse workspace. It's mm-hmm. just, it's the natural order of things. Uh, when you immerse the people and give them the resources to do these things, they will, they'll do it. It'll happen organically. And of course, the military is one of our most diverse employers right. anywhere. Right. right. And so I wonder, as you look around the landscape now in our region, where else do you see really good work going on? Who who's got this? Who understands how to do this well? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say that there every every company has their uh, their unique organization within. Of course, uh, GE Aviation has their uh, veterans network, and they do a lot of work in the space. Uh, I've I've been connected with them uh, in my previous job. Mm-hmm. I, I did a lot of work with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that Procter and Gamble has a, a small team that that goes out and, and probably does uh, unique efforts in different regions. Mm-hmm. But the people that I know mm-hmm. of here in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. um, you know, we talked about CentOS. Uh, CentOS has a, a 30 or some odd year old military recruiting program. I'm aware of uh, First Group is, is putting mm-hmm. a program together right now as well. And, and they have a, a, a fairly unique set of roles around the country that fit very well with military. So uh, I don't want to leave anybody out, but there are the, the organizations that are doing, you know, good work in this space. Uh, and and I think a lot of times, sometimes they're, maybe their work goes unnoticed. So, you know, for the veteran applicant, I, I always say, go out and, and research, you know, who's doing what, uh, try to make contacts at that company. You never know, there might be somebody who is a veteran themselves working in a leadership role that can connect you to an opportunity. Well, and you remind me of two things. One, just a um, a point of a fact that, that I learned working with you and others um, and the military consortium effort, which was that veterans are probably more than any other population here, highly mobile. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as we think about having to recruit into the market for the talent that we don't have, that obstacle of moving to a new place is not such an issue with right. this population because they've moved all over the place. They're 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 used to this. Right. And so there isn't that challenge of, no, I'd really rather stay on the East Coast or wherever I am. To your point, the uh, I think there's a stat that suggests that roughly 40% of people that leave the armed forces don't return to their home of record. So- if you're talking about, let's say, 200,000 people leaving the military every year or more, actually, uh, 40% of them, almost half of them are are going to follow a job or end up somewhere that they didn't come from in the first place. Yeah. So we have an opportunity as employers to say, if you'd like to move to one of our locations and, and take this great new job, the Department of Defense will move them uh, when they're transitioning out of the military, will pay for that move. So the company doesn't have to, bur- uh, to, to bear any of the burden of cost to, to move them which is pretty significant for larger organizations. If you look at the bottom line on 
but also pretty significant for smaller companies right. who don't really have the means to provide Absolutely. relocation expenses. So that I think that that provides another opportunity for companies that don't have that scale. Sure. Matt, you also mentioned something in passing that I think is, if I look at it from a veteran perspective, uh, an entry point into the companies. You talked about the network that people who've been in the military have, and, and that seems really obvious. But you also mentioned uh, internal networks at companies. So employee resource groups, affinity networks that are built around populations. And many companies here in our region have veterans networks. And so another path for someone seeking employment would be to to first find out whether or not that company has an existing network, because that would say something about their commitment to this population, wouldn't it? Right. Yeah. I think the the unique benefit of those networks and the employee resource groups within them, uh, and I have to be careful how I say this because I don't want anybody to to hear this and say, "Wait a minute, the veteran population leaves their first job." What do you mean? There's a there's a number out there I don't know right off the top of my head, but uh, there's a, a certain period of time that says something like the the first job out of the military, the the average tenure is like nine months mm-hmm. to a year and a half. Somebody leaves the military, takes their first job, and only stays there for roughly a year. In a lot of cases, that stat is drawn up because somebody takes the first job that comes along. Somebody like me, when I got out of the military, I jumped into something where I could put some money in my pocket. But for the person who is is fortunate enough to connect to a you know a, a long term position, something that is not uh, maybe like a temporary role or or, or you know they're joining a, a, an organization into a defined role with a career path, uh, the benefit of the ERG and that network is that. Now this person feels rooted to the company with other people in that organization that have made that transition too. So it it makes them less likely to want to leave or pick up and go and 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 jump into something else and and find, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. You don't want them to find the grass is greener on the other side or rather think that. You want them to say the grass is greener in the next position here in the company. I want to move up the ladder. So something I've done in my previous work was in building the ERGs also building a networking or a uh, rather a mentorship program, uh, sort of a list of contacts in the mm-hmm. company of people who are now in senior roles. So VPs, director levels, et cetera, who were prior military that have made this transition 10 plus years ago. When I'm bringing in the new E5 out of the army uh, and, and that person's being hired into an entry level role, now I'm going to connect them with the vice president of sales or something like that. This is a an executive level person in a Fortune 500 company that is now but having, someone who gets them. Right, right, right. Absolutely. But also, I mean, think about as an entry level, think about it as a kid, essentially coming out of the military uh, or out of college for that matter. Mm-hmm. Think about the the defining power that that has when suddenly your personal mentor is somebody who's been with this company, who has a a, a powerful role in the organization and and, and sits you know, in a, a very um, unique leadership role. And this person and you are now talking on a biweekly or monthly basis. Uh, something about that makes it really hard to want to go looking. You want to mm-hmm. stick around and, and take mm-hmm. all that person's advice mm-hmm. and, and and try to grow inside of the organization. Mm-hmm. So that's a an easy tool to plug in that is often overlooked. But that's part of that network inside of the the employee resource groups that can be built very very simply. And again, we can see how that works um, against many other populations. You know, we know it's critically important for women in their advancement in an organization, for instance. Um, so it's a best practice for what's happening with hiring military, but it really can be reapplied, as you've suggested already, to many other populations. 
Matt, I know that the role that you're in now at Cushman in Wakefield is a brand new role for the company. So I'm curious about why they have decided at this point in time to put more muscle behind military recruiting and and, and integration into the workforce at, at Cushman and Wakefield. Right. So the company has for several years now been involved in a lot of different military projects and philanthropic items and, and some recruitment items as well, like hiring our heroes and, and uh, Team Rubicon and, and things like that. I think the organization has just realized the immense value in in hiring military in greater volume. And so now we're going to have as a total uh, three people dedicated to the military recruitment and, and military outreach efforts within the organization. So a lot of times what we find are project managers or maintenance and engineering people coming out of the military make a great fit to work in our different properties around the United States. Uh, as well as the different administrative roles, uh, IT, HR, as we mentioned before, accounting, anything like that. So the company is 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 now stepping fully into this uh, and dedicating resources in different places among the military to be a greater philanthropic steward, but also being uh, a recruiting powerhouse in the military space. So really balancing that right thing to do with smart thing to do. Absolutely. And what we'll find inside of the company is we have a lot of leadership that have military backgrounds and, and they're plugged into the military space. And that also lends itself to having uh, a lot of support behind the program and its growth. So as we think about our region, the Cincinnati region and um, the opportunities that exist here, if I'm an employer that has not thought about this or may have sort of sort of some incidental or accidental veterans in my workforce but have not been intentional about it, what would you say to them? What advice would you give them? And perhaps what would you say to them about what you or any other veteran brings to the table? I would say that if you find you have a population of veterans inside of that company, try to mobilize them to either create a network internally. Um, and a lot of times you'll find that they will take the initiative anyway. If you give them some resource or a task and say, can we build a, a military or veterans ERG? And what you'll find is that morale among them and retention among them will increase. Uh, and they were also recruit from their own networks. They'll also be very visible members of the community, uh, locally, regionally, mm -hmm. nationally, mm -hmm. to then say, hey, I am a Marine veteran or Navy veteran, and I'm now leading an ERG inside of the company, which will organically attract more military people to want to come look at that organization. But I would say that you're, you now have a, uh, a dedicated, in many cases, skilled and disciplined population of people that have been mobilized or empowered. Uh, empowerment, as we know, when you simply give people the keys to start predicting their own future, their own fate, uh, they will work harder. I mean, they just, they, they come to work and they take more pride in what they're doing and they will uh, create more initiative inside of the organization. And I think that that's largely powerful. And if you find that these people are, are doing a very good job at work, try to get more of them. Uh, dedicate some resources to that ERG or that network within the company. In a lot of cases, those people will go out and do some additional recruitment. So if I'm a hiring manager, though, and I'm looking at Matt Disher's resume, and it says that your principal job was blowing up IEDs, and I'm like, I don't have time to do this translation, what would you say to me? I would say, talk to one of your veterans inside of the company and see if they can make a translation there. 
Um, I'd say the second thing about that is that there are a lot of resources for the applicant, the veteran applicant to not have that on their resume. I had not, well, I had something like that on my resume when I was getting out, but um, yeah, I wish but I could you go quickly back and, learned to take it off. Right. Yeah, I, I wish I <laughs> yeah. could go back and find my first resume because it probably was very similar to that. It was yeah. a lot of um, maybe showboating. It was, hey, look at all these cool things that I've done. I didn't realize at the time that without nobody, flinching, right? Right. Yeah. Right. I didn't think anybody that nobody would find that impressive. You know, I just thought that that would be a cool thing to put on a resume, and and it does. It describes what I was doing. But in fact, it described what I was doing 10% of the time. And the other 90% of the time were, were other leadership and planning items and things like that. So I would say to them, if you get that resume that is like that, there are resources online. You can go into Google and, and simply search for that occupational specialty, and it'll tell you what that person did. But I think more than anything else, get an interpretation either from that person or through your veteran network from that person. Because what you'll find is when you ask them, where did you spend 90% of your time? It's not blowing up IEDs or doing explosives. It is all of those other things I mentioned, standing at the planning table with the colonels and uh, managing finances with your Marines or your, your sailors or your airmen. It's doing all the, the, the back-end uh, administrative and tactical things that we do in jobs anyway, um, handling paperwork in some cases. So I, I would just say you have to dig deeper than face value. You can't judge a book by its cover. I know we've all heard that. Can't look at a resume and say, I know what this person has done. I'm going to cast them aside because they're not good for the job. You've got to do a little bit of digging. And I think that takes us back to where we started, which was the the idea that there is bias that exists out there. And, and part of our journey to really fully leveraging this pool of talent is to get past it and to recognize the potential on that page and in right. that person. Right. My guest today has been Matt Disher, Military Recruiting Program Leader for Cushman and Wakefield. This has been another episode of the Inclusive Chamber coming to you from the Cincinnati, USA Regional Chamber. Fernanda Horner is our producer, and I'm Mary Stagaman, your host. To hear more of our podcast and learn more about how we are making our region diverse by design and inclusive by intention, visit CincinnatiChamber.com. Thank you.